This podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia, a major national partner of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and also the sponsor of the Flying Doctor podcast series. They cut him open from knee to ankle on both sides of his leg. We had a big problem. He was quite um, bunched up and on his side and squashed up in the dirt. Two point two, having responded to one. We have a young lady unconscious. Topic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. I just did a quick checklist when we got to him and can you move, can you feel your feet, can you wiggle your fingers, do you know where you are, you know, I just sort of run through that pretty quickly. I could tell straight away the significant injury. Being a parent is hard work at the best of times, but in my view it takes a certain kind of woman to raise a family in the outback. Without the conveniences of daycare, local school, sports clubs, supermarkets and department stores. Raising kids in the bush takes parenting to a whole new level. Amber Driver finished school in 1998 and loaded her ute to go looking for adventure. That adventure took her to the remote Elkidra station, a large cattle property located 400 kilometres northeast of Alice Springs. It is here she and her husband John are raising her two sons with all manner of adventures and challenges that no one would want to endure. Hello, Amber. Hello, Lana. Thanks for having me. Oh, look, tell me, how did you come to be looking for adventures in your ute in 1998? Well, it started probably when I was seven years old. As all children are very impressionable, we had a... um, a bloke working at home for mum and dad who left um, left there and headed north for adventure in the Territory. And every year he would come home to set, to visit with mum and dad. And, uh, yeah, I just thought that eventually I'd grow up and we'd get married and we'd both move to the Territory together. So that's, that's where it all started. Where was your birthplace? Well, I was born in Queensland in Gympie and then grew up in New South Wales on um, mum and dad's family block near Narrabri. Oh, that's a beautiful part of the world. So you you left school and tell me, how did that adventure start? You, My understanding is you went off looking for adventure and you ended up in Alice Springs. Is that right? Yeah, I sure did. Um, so through high school, um, I was pretty focused on making my trip north um, after completing Year 12. So I had plenty of time to network and uh, really use some connections um, especially, you know, through family. And I was really lucky enough to have one of our neighbours offer a contact in Alice Springs uh, that he went through school with. So I took him up on that offer. My first job in Alice Springs was working for the Dan family on Milton Park Station. So, um, yeah, I was pretty lucky to have some um, good family connections just to get the leg in the door up here. And what sort of work were you doing? Uh, well, I was employed as a Jillaroo. So that uh, up here means every job. Nothing's off the table. So I think my very first day I was juicing oranges from their orchard 
So you've got a range from from that to um, riding green horses and help bringing in horses, cattle work, mustering, fencing, anything that you can turn your hand to, that's what you do. So I guess the term should be Jill of all trades. Well, that's right. We're Jill of all trades, master of none maybe. <laughs> right. How did you come to meet your now husband, John? Well, that's a very romantic story and it involved a Christmas party in Alice Springs and probably a few cold beers across the bar. And, uh, yeah, it was a really good time in Alice Springs uh, in the late 90s. Um, lots of young ones, lots of ringers, govies, and a really good a really good scene uh, to be part of. So, um yeah, there was a really a really good group of people and, yeah, he took a bit of um, tracking down and chasing down, but eventually we got there. What's El Kedra Station like? Could you describe it? El Kedra Station is between Alice Springs and Mount Isa. Uh, we cover two and a half million acres and uh, there's a, a range of uh, different landscapes. We've got rivers, we've got open grass flats, uh, we're on the eastern side of the Davenport Ranges, so we've got some really beautiful um, hill country, very rocky, and uh, to our eastern side of the station, it opens out onto the Barclay Tablelands. So we've got some really nice grass country out there and um, a range of different feed for cattle to browse on and it's a really good block in a good season and also in a drought. What's the weather or the temperatures like? Is it a seasonal, monsoonal kind of temperature there at El Kedra or is it very high temps during the days? Yeah, sure. Um, we sort of rely on the, um, as you touched on, the monsoon season from Darwin. So we sort of are the southernmost influence of that weather pattern. Uh, we get summer rain. We don't usually get winter rains at all. Uh, we're not in the frost belt, so... Um, I think oh, about 15 years ago there was this very small patch of frost on the lawn which we all took a photo of and thought it was amazing. Um, so we're, we're sort of uh, tropical. We can grow fruit and veggies all year round. Um, yeah, so the, the very first year I was here, our first summer, we had 32 inches of rain for the summer, which... Um, yeah, it was amazing to see and we spent most of the year flying around the place because we couldn't drive around. So, um, And then uh, sort of at the opposite side of that, we've just come through a really dry period. We've had four years consecutively with um, well below our average rainfall, which is 13 inches here. So, you know, it sort of swings in circles and, yeah, we just sort of um, keep on keep on. How far away is the closest township or city? Well, Alice Springs is our closest town and um, that's 400 kilometres the shortest way. Is that on dirt road or bitumen? Yeah, so um, we get down to Alice Springs on the Sandover and that's 300 kilometres of dirt and then we hit the Plenty Highway and that starts a bitumen. So from the Plenty we connect to the Stuart Highway and head south to Alice. Do you end up going to town very often um, or is that sort of once every few months? Well, certainly when I first moved out here, um, I think we'd go to town four times a year and that was that was kind of it. And a day off at home was cleaning the shed. <laughs> uh, but now, yeah, things are quite different. Life is 
is totally different for us and um, I feel like we're in town all the time, which could be every week or two. Are you driving or flying? Both, yeah. So out at the station we have a Cessna 206 and I pilot the plane and also um, a range of motor cars that we drive to town. So depending on what we need to pick up or what stores need to be loaded, uh, we'll decide which mode of transport we're going to town in. And so that means, I guess, that you have your own strip there at El Kidra um, that is ready for use, for purpose, for whether it's mustering or whatever other use. Yeah, we're really lucky. Um, I probably should do a bit of research on this one, but I believe maybe in the 70s we um, had our airstrip uh, fully formed and rolled gravel. So it's an all-weather strip, um, which is quite critical for remote life. We know that even after inches of rain, we can um, come and go in the aeroplane. So that sort of provides the lifeline to um, being able to be accessed. Now you have two beautiful sons, uh, Sunny and Reuben. I understand that there was um, an accident that occurred just a few years back when Sunny had come home for holidays during the school holes. Would you be able to tell me about that? Sure, yeah. So school holidays are pretty um, precious time for bush kids and uh, they don't waste a minute of it. So it was 2019, Sunny was in year nine and it was the June-July holidays and uh, we just, we picked Sunny up from the airport, made the trip back to the station and I think it must have been dark by the time we got home. So the next morning, first thing, the bikes are all kicked into gear because motorbikes is part of their life and a pretty big part of it. Um, so off they went. Uh, so Reuben was with his youngest brother who was in year two at the time and unfortunately um, they had a collision. So, um, yeah, it's just it was quite out of character and really a freak accident because these kids have been riding since they could walk pretty well. Yeah, Reuben managed to get back on his bike and straighten his handlebars and ride back to the house to raise the alarm because they were a little distance from the house. And what did he say when he arrived to the house? Well, he was pretty shaken up and pretty frantic because he knew straight away that um, we had a big problem. So uh, I don't think I waited too long for a big explanation. I just knew that I had to get moving. So I jumped in one of the Toyotas and my husband, who was at the shed, could hear what was going on from the shed. So he jumped in another one. And uh, we left Reuben with his grandmother and um, we headed in the general direction that, uh, you know, they'd been riding. And it actually took us a little while to find him. Um, we ended up turning off both the Toyotas and whistled out and we could hear him. So we jumped in one Toyota and off we went because his bike was laying down on the ground, as as was he. So it was it was actually quite hard to find him. But um, when we did, we could tell straight away that, um, yeah, this was a trip to town. So what did he look like when you arrived? Uh, he was in a lot of pain and um, he was awake and coherent. So that was um, straight away you make these assessments. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing when you're dealing with an emergency. Um, I am quite clinical uh, how I go about processing it at the time. So um, I just did a quick checklist when we got to him and 
you know, can you move? Can you feel your feet? Can you wiggle your fingers? Um, do you know where you are? You know, I just sort of run through that pretty quickly. And his leg, I could tell straight away the significant injury um, that was standing out was a leg injury. So um, I was just trying to decide quickly what else was going on for him because it meant that I had to leave John um, there with him and drive back to the house to get in touch with the flying doctor. So I presume you left John there and you sped back to the station. Is that what happened? Yep, that's correct. So got back to the station and, um, of course, all things uh, don't come in ones. Uh, Picked up the phone to use the phone and it wasn't working. So... um, yeah, that's that's a long-standing issue that a lot of remote people face is really poor telecommunication um, access or, um, yeah. So uh, went up to a different house to use a different phone and thankfully we got through on that and, uh, yeah, just sort of had to start relaying uh, what had happened um, to the flying doctor. What did you tell them um, when you got through to them? Was, was there specific information that they were needing to know about the location and about the injuries or uh, and the frame of mind of the patient? Yeah, sure. So protocol out here when we call the flying doctor um, is we ring their number and it's a specific number. You tell the receptionist who you are, where you are, and the patient's name, age, what's happened and Probably the most important thing is a return phone number because at any point if the call cuts out, uh, they can call you back. So after you relay this information, they get in touch with the, um, the medical officer on duty at the time and they will call you back. So I just stood by the phone um, to get the phone call and I think um, giving really clear instructions and having an idea of injury, initial injury, is really key because it helps speed up the process. So you really have to convince yourself to keep calm, uh, keep the information flowing and give them helpful information that they need to make quick decisions. That's so true. When you rock into an emergency ward in a metro city, they have the triage system and you come in and you present and they ask you, you know, the barrage of questions and so forth, but they can see you Mm. there. They can see exactly um, what condition or state you're in and and they can make their assessments. Whereas with the RFDS, that triage um, is complicated by being such a remote, long distance communication. Um, But we operate very similarly in that uh, things are triaged in terms of, you know, uh, priority one, two, three, and so forth, and and planes are dispatched based on that. So, how long did it take for the RFDS to arrive at um, your local runway there at Elkedra Station? Well, from the initial phone call, I think to the plane arriving was around three and a half hours, which we would classify as a very quick service. Um, yeah, and I think three and a half hours if you. Anywhere else you might throw your hands up in the air, but we were we were really thankful that we were able to access medical help that quickly. A lot of um, most remote places have access to what we call a white box, and that's um, put on remote stations to assist the flying doctors 
uh, when we need to give medication to someone that's unwell. And uh, it just so happened that I was very efficient in giving our white box a turnover of goods and did not have anything uh, to give Sonny while he was waiting. So he really... um, he really did just have to tough it out with a pretty significant break in his leg. Yeah, those those minutes and hours were long. Mm, long. Yeah. So did you and your husband just sit with him or did you try to move him? Uh, it was clear on our initial um, assessment that moving him was not going to be an option. The next challenge was the point where the phone was was back at the homestead and where Sonny was was well away from that. Yeah, I did quite a few trips backwards and forwards um, and you just have to play to your strengths in circumstances like this. So I knew that I had to be the point of contact for the flying doctor and be available on the phone, uh, but I also knew that um, that support was needed on the field with Sonny. Once we got him stabilised and sh- uh, shade put over him because he was out in the sun and a little bit more comfortable... Yeah, things calmed down considerably. But uh, the big information was how to make him comfortable. So we were instructed to splint his leg and get him flat on a stretcher or because he was quite um, bunched up and on his side and sort of all squashed up in the dirt. So um, when I went back to the crash scene with all of the stuff that we would need to use, uh, to ensure that we could get his legs straight and put him flat. Sonny wasn't going to have a piece of it. He didn't want anyone to touch him and he certainly didn't want to be shifted. So um, we let that run its course and eventually he asked us to move him because he was, you know, getting pins and needles and losing his feeling down one side and there are a few other things happening. So once he sort of gave us the green light, um, we were prepared with people and somewhere to get him to. Right. So you did you have a stretcher or what did you put him on? No. We, well, we don't have a stretcher, but we are quite resourceful when we need to be. So we organised um, a swag and we had a range of different uh, things ready to splint his leg. Yeah. So once, once we were ready to go, I had um, my husband hold his, uh, support his neck and hold his head and um, his brother to support his torso. And as we rolled Sonny onto the swag, the instruction was to, for me to support both ankles and pull his broken leg to the same length as the good leg. So that was, um, yeah, you've just got to prepare and get the job done because the quicker you can do that and more efficient, the better it is for your patient. So, yeah, once we once we got him rolled over and his legs at the same point, that was where he stayed until the flying doctor got there. So, yeah, we weren't going to – we didn't even attempt to, to splint his leg after that because it was just too, too much. So, but, you know, you've got to take your hat off to these bush kids because they're tough and um, when they know this has got to happen – you know, they're in it with you and they just grit their teeth and get on with it. So, yeah, when that plane touched down, we're all pretty happy. Oh, tough kids, tough parents. Oh, holy moly.
This podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Have you seen any of our seven large RFDS flight simulators as they move around Australia? Attending school, community or field days, each is being towed by an Isuzu D-MAX Ute, courtesy of Isuzu Ute Australia. Reliable vehicles are imperative in the harsh Australian outback and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are the perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these simulators right across Australia. To learn more, search IZZU online. So the flying doctor arrives, they land. Um, how do they get out to Sunny? Uh, well, we were there, we had a vehicle there to take them to Sunny, and we weren't that far from the airstrip actually, so that was. Um, that was really fortuitous, I think. I wish I could remember everyone's name off the top of my head. The flight crew, the doctors, the pilot, they were just amazing. So they got him uh, onto the stretcher, they got him into the plane. Did you travel with him back to Adelaide or what happened next? Uh, yes, I got on the plane with him after we after they got him in. Um, well, I think the first thing they did was just stabilise him on the ground with some um, pain meds So, and then off we went. First port of call was Alice Springs. Look, I just can't talk highly enough of these people. They're just absolutely amazing. The handover in Alice Springs Hospital, everyone was waiting for us um, in emergency there. At the time, the complications that were happening or underlying weren't clear at this point in time. So um, x-rays showed that they were dealing with a badly broken leg, but it took a little bit longer to figure out that we had um, compartment syndrome in play, which is probably more critical than a broken leg. Could you explain what that is? I'm not familiar with that term. Compartment syndrome in layman's terms, and excuse me, all the doctors that are listening to me explain, uh, is where the blood can go down into your extremities but cannot pump back out of it. So Essentially, everything is swollen and the muscles get full of blood and has no way to escape. What you do to resolve this problem is um, cut open the skin, basically. It looks like one of those sausages that you put into boiling water that pops open. Um, I hope that's a nice graphic for everybody. It's a good analogy. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, Sonny's case was extreme. He, they cut him open from knee to ankle on both sides of his leg. The gap sort of down his leg was big enough to sit a couple of mobile phones in on each side. So that's wow. Um, sort of gives you a picture of the significant swelling that he was dealing with on top of his broken leg. And, of course, when, when compartment syndrome goes for so long, the limb may not be viable anymore. So that was certainly the next hurdle mentally that we were dealing with was perhaps after this surgery we can't guarantee there'll be a leg. So that certainly took, um, I think he had several general anaesthetics and surgeries to try and save his leg, basically. Was this all in Alice or had you since been transported to Adelaide? Well, it was actually all in Alice Springs. We were really lucky to have a great orthopaedic team um, led by Dr Williams. Yeah, I think from my perspective, the support that you get from your local community uh, really helps lift you up and bring you through these things. And 
you know, the care that everyone gives you, everyone's so invested in getting you the next step. And I was quite happy to stay, stay put. And I think, um, for the first few days, Sonny certainly wasn't in any state to be moved. He had, uh, big issues with pain management. He couldn't get on top of, um, pain. So that was a really big challenge. Yeah, it was, it was hard going. Wow. What happened next? Uh, just hospital, um, the lights, the beeps and, um, the care, um, from everybody. But, uh, yeah, it's sort of hard to put, uh, you feel like you're in a bit of a vortex when you spend long term in hospital, especially as a carer, because, um, I certainly couldn't do anything for Sonny to take the pain away or help him get through it quicker. Yeah, so I think the best thing I could do for him was be there with him. Um, and, yeah, we just sort of each day was a new challenge. I think he stayed flat on his back for weeks and when we sort of got the green light to see a physio, um, just sitting up was the first day he sat up and that was exhausting. So... Once we sort of got into that stage of um, recovery, uh, things moved along, like just dangling his leg over the end of the or edge of the bed. That was another couple of days just to do that. Um, and to be honest, I can't really remember exactly how long we were in the hospital. I do remember the day they said we could be discharged and that was the day that I cried for the first time. Oh, wow. Wow. You'd been running on adrenaline all that time yeah that's that's probably the the thing that is the most important to touch on because that's okay take your time you have to be really tough yeah yeah it's tough love isn't it it's it's trying to mm-hmm. to be there for your son and endure what he's enduring um, and be that support for him. Yeah. So, yeah, even it was a really happy day, but it was just finally we, I sort of was uh, giving myself the opportunity to have that moment where I could cry and deal with all those emotions. So, yeah, Sunny thought it was quite a strange reaction from me when they said that and I burst into tears but I really was quite happy uh but you know that's just it's part of the way I have to process things especially when you're directly responsible for so much that happens when you're remote so you know I certainly can't afford to be falling apart every time someone gets a splinter you've just got to you know deal with it and get through it so at the end of August that's when he went back down to Adelaide I flew with him down to Adelaide with his crutches and plaster and uh, he wasn't allowed to weight bear on his legs so a big blow down there is not being able to play sport so um, a lot of mental challenges that he had to overcome but when you're so well supported by family community and friends it really picks you up. So has Sonny been on a motorbike since? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. I think he hadn't even got out of plaster and he was on his back wheel giving me a wave down the road. <laughs> and uh, But, uh, 
you know, that's the thing. You can't you can't not do what you love. And these kids are born to ride bikes. Ours yeah. are. We don't have any horses here. Right. So um we need to be mindful and supportive uh of what makes them happy and fills their cup. Um sometimes I wonder, but uh yeah. And tell me, has what happens? <laughs> has that been the last of um of the RFDS flights for your sons? Have has there been any other incident that has required the call out? Yeah. Sonny has um steered clear of them, which is great. But um Reuben, our youngest son, had um an encounter with a red back spider here. Um it was probably about eight thirty one night. And uh, it had somehow got into his shorts and um, oh no! he could feel it wiggling around and he wasn't quite sure what was going on. So he decided to squash it instead of get rid of it. So he got a red back spider bite and that wasn't great. You know, it bit him several times just because of where it was and um, another phone call and... Uh, it was, I confirmed the spider, I was, um, yeah, got it out of his trousers. And, uh, yeah, so off we went. We actually have a remote um, community here about an hour to the south of us and they have a, um, a clinic. So one of the things with our airstrip, although it's an all-weather strip, uh, we don't have any lighting on it um, at the moment. So we were instructed to get ourselves to some medical help and the flying doctor would uh, meet us at this remote community. So we loaded Reuben into the car and off we went and met the flying doctor there probably 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night and they um, airlifted both of us. I'm not sure if many of your listeners have been bitten by a redback but it's not advised. I haven't been, but oh dear, and that's not a nice place to be bitten either. That's really horrible. No, not at all. So yeah, the pain um, is just like a gift that keeps giving because uh, the pain of a red back can only be managed with Panadol or Nurofen. And Reuben was maybe six or seven, so he wasn't very old. He was only a little fella. And um, we very thoroughly check everything now where the little where they could be. I think that's okay to be a little bit manic after something like that. We certainly have had a lot of experiences with the flying doctor and I just can't speak highly enough of them. It just, yeah, they just provide us with a security and confidence that we need when we're so isolated to ensure that we can get to help. Um, We had an instance, I think it was the early 2000s, where my father-in-law had a really bad accident with his car. Um, The front wheel came off and um, his passenger was unharmed, thank goodness, but he was, yeah, quite seriously hurt. So, and again, it was in the evening. It sort of happened right on dusk and he, he certainly, again, was not fit to be moved by road. So we sort of had to sit it out all night at the station with him um, having some pretty serious symptoms and I requested that a doctor be sent to us to get us through the night. So, yeah, and the next morning, you know, he was airlifted into town and, yeah, he was... And he pulled through and he got through, but, you know, the the 
care that they can give you on the end of the phone. And I talk to the flying doctors all night um, to talk me through what to do until someone arrived to help. We suspected he had a punctured lung, broken pelvis. Um, he was bleeding from the ears. Like There was a lot happening. To receive that level of information over the phone uh, by a service like the Flying Doctor is absolutely critical. And I'm not trained at all in medical field, but they certainly give us the confidence to deal with anything that we face out here. So yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty lucky. Oh, look, thank you so much, Amber, for sharing your story and telling me about your family and about life out there. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you again. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope, um, yeah, I hope the Flying Doctor, well, I don't hope, I know that they will be helping plenty of families for many years to come. So uh, we just hope it's not us. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode. And thanks again to our major sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu Ute is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates. To learn more, search Azuzu Ute online.